Hi, it's Eric again. If it feels like I'm always asking you for money, it's because I'm always asking you for money. That's because producing a high-quality podcast like Making Gay History costs a lot. Between ten dollars and $20,000 for each episode, for the audio and all the extra resources and archival photos you'll find on our website. One way to help us keep bringing LGBTQ history to life through the voices of the people who lived it is to join our Patreon community, $5 a month or $60 a year. And for that, you get a front row seat to my interviews with present-day history makers, behind-the-scenes production conversations, and delicious clips from my archive that we couldn't include in regular episodes. Right now, we have 200 Patreon followers. That's just a fraction of our many thousands of listeners. Can you help us double that by the 55th anniversary of Stonewall this coming Pride Month? We can't do what we do without all our supporters. And if you aren't one already, I hope you will be soon. Or, if you are already, get one of your friends to sign up to join our Patreon community at patreon.com slash makinggayhistory. That's patreon.com slash makinggayhistory. Or just go to makinggayhistory.com and hit the Patreon subscription button on our homepage. Thanks so much. Now, on to the episode you've chosen to hear. I'm Eric Marcus, and this is Making Gay History. In 1983, 27-year-olds Deborah Johnson and Zandra Rolon Amato went to a Los Angeles restaurant for what was supposed to be a romantic dinner. Instead, they wound up in court. The two seasoned activists from the 1970s and early 1980s gay and lesbian civil rights movement found themselves face-to-face with the kind of discrimination they thought was history. By the early 1980s, Dozens of cities and counties across the country had passed laws protecting the rights of gay people in employment, housing, and public accommodations. That included restaurants, but that didn't mean everyone complied with the laws, and a lot of those new laws had never been tested in court. Deborah Johnson grew up in Los Angeles in what she described as a very upper-middle-class bourgeois black household, a very well-rooted, extremely well-connected family. Deborah called Zandra's family a Mexican commune. Zandra explained jokingly that she was related to three-quarters of the population in Brownsville, Texas. So here's the scene. It's January 5th, 1991, and I'm sitting in Deborah and Zandra's living room at their little ranch house in Aptos, California, just a couple of blocks from the Pacific Ocean in Northern California. They are on the edges of their seats, eager to tell me how they found themselves in the middle of a very public civil rights battle represented by the famous attorney Gloria Allred. After I asked Deborah and Zandra to identify themselves, I asked Deborah what inspired her to be an outspoken and very public activist. What is this book about? I'm going to tell you, I just want to check your voice levels. You can just introduce yourselves. Zandra Rulon. Deborah Johnson. Why, Why did you do this? For my life. I thought I was going to die. It was my life versus people's attitudes. I used to secretly read The Lesbian Tide. I used to come in the brown you know, envelope and I'd stick it in between my mattresses. And I remember I used to read it and think, God, how could, those, how could they be so dikey? How could they just be playing baseball and stuff? And, and everybody know, you know that they're out and how could they do this? Because I was very much still into the double hiding thing. And then I had a sense that I was getting a free ride that there were a lot of people who were putting a lot of shit out on the line, you know, 
um, almost kind of like a stand up and be counted sort of thing. Whenever the occasion came up for gay people to speak on the issue of gay, or on gay issues, I would always volunteer. Whether that meant on radio talk shows, um, on panels, um, colleges, um, the media, newspaper, you know, everything, anything and everything. And I think it was um, becoming more open about my gayness. Uh, I was also being a lot more politically involved because of the need to come out even more. I had the advantage, one, of being educated. My experience is that there's a lot of academic bias within the gay and lesbian movement. And if you split verbs and can't write and, and all of that. And, and you know, and there are a lot of good grassroots activists out there who are very bright people, you know, who don't have the college experience that I have watched time and time again for their value, for their opinions to be devalued or them not to be taken seriously, you know, particularly like when you're dealing with people of color. And there was just a lot of racism. I mean, perhaps the most blatant kinds of racism were the exclusionary kind of policies, the sort of shit like you would see um, in the clubs where, you know, if you're black, you can only get in on a certain night. We used to call it plantation night, like it's Studio One, you know, or that kind of thing. David, have they really had that? Where they oh, had, yeah. Yeah. Blacks were only allowed on certain nights. Oh, yeah. We used to pick it all the time. Sure. Yeah. You could only get into the clubs, which is sort of the irony because the gay and lesbian community was much further behind than the straight community when it came to basic civil rights kinds of things. Certain people were um, needed to show like two or three picture IDs. Three picture IDs. Now, how many people carry three Give picture IDs? Give me a IDs? fucking break. No open-toed shoes. Well, and uh, it wasn't... They Arbitrary. never said it that. Yeah, they never said that, but everybody that was people of color would get carded, you know, heavily. Yeah. So if, like, if I went with a white friend, maybe I wouldn't make it in the door, you know, and they would, <laughs> you know, and it's, I mean, it was, I mean, you know, that, that kind of stuff. Did they really have a designated night where black people become? Yes, I'm telling you. advertise it as such? The way they would advertise it would be through the entertainment, like a black DJ or black music or some kind of, like, connotation that it was going to be like more of that kind of culture was like that day. Then you wouldn't be carded three times. Yeah. Then you wouldn't be carded. I'm telling you, that was the biggest joke. Plantation night. That made you crazy. <laughs> it's terrible. Beyond, I mean, beyond crazy. Just how fucking dare you? Who the shit do you think you are? I mean, just really, who do you think? <laughs> You are. You know, you've got to realize, too, that like we're both women of color. And you cannot separate that. You just, you just can't, you know, it's like you can't separate like our lesbianism from, from our racial identities. So we're in this really high consciousness stuff. I mean, up against all kind of stuff. And then we come to the gay and lesbian community naively, expecting it to be more sensitive. How can, as an oppressed group, oppress other people? And what I kept getting over and over and over again was that 
that people of color didn't matter and that we were somehow real ancillary. It's like white was right. And then just racial comments, just racial slurs. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, like all, all of the time. All of the time. And then out of my own need, feeling ostracized, uh, around about 21, 22, I started uh, a big social club network thing for black lesbians, about 600 women. And actually, I met Zandy through that. The social group mm -hmm. for, for lesbians. Mm -hmm. And you walked in the door? <laughs> they had a, um, a party at this club. I remember walking in and seeing her at the bar and thinking to myself, God damn, perfect. And thinking of us, and then meeting her and realizing, oh, I am going to get in trouble with this woman. Somehow, somewhere, sometime, I will get, definitely get in trouble with this woman. Um, let's lead up to the uh, to the restaurant. You hadn't planned to make any political statement by going to dinner. Oh, oh hell no! It was it, it was the <laughs> privacy. First time, it was the first weekend. At that at the time, I was working on Saturdays, so this was the first weekend that we were going to have a complete weekend together. Uh, since we had gotten together. It was also the year right before um, the Martin Luther King's birthday was made into a holiday. So it was the first real weekend that we were going to have together. So we were going to take off Friday. Right. His birthday was on the 15th, a Saturday, and we were going to take Friday off. So this was for Thursday night of the 13th of January, because Sue, we were going to have this three-day weekend. 1983. Of 1983. Right. And a friend of mine told me about this restaurant that was really nice, and the restaurant had these six booths on one side that were real romantic and a um, little sheer curtain, and it was just perfect. And what was the name of the restaurant? Papa, Papa Chu. So I made the reservations, and at this time, Deborah didn't know where we were going, so it was going to be a surprise to her. Um, and we got to the restaurant, they, uh, and, I had suggest, and I had requested the, the booths. We got there and... The reservation was in your name. Yes. The um, maitre d' or the person that we thought was the maitre d' later on we find out that he wasn't the maitre d' was a waiter. Um, kind of questioned us about, are you sure you want the booths? And we told him yes, that, that's what, you know, Deborah didn't know what we wanted. I said, do we want the booths? <laughs> yes, we want the booths. Yeah, we want the booths. <laughs> so they showed us to the table and it's the type of, of restaurant or the, the booths where you have to move the table out so that you can get in. A it was horseshoe. Like, yeah, it was like a horseshoe. And in the middle of the horseshoe was, was like a fountain, and there was a guy with a, a violinist who came around, and, and the booth, right in front of the, of the table was a little white sheer curtain that closed in the candlelight, and it was just romantic. Did it occur to you that, there, that this might be a problem? Not at Did, all. It didn't cross your mind? Not at all. I mean, to me, discrimination never enters my mind first. Ever. You didn't feel funny making reservations? No. We don't ghettoize ourselves like you know that. What? We don't ghettoize no. ourselves. The Not world is in what we live in. They showed us to our table. We sit down. And, and we were waiting for the menus. We were like three minutes, which is, you know, like a decent amount of time. Wait, three or five minutes. And the same guy came back and, and yanked the table away and told us, you know, you know, so sorry, you know, but you can't sit here. You know, and that's when he went into all this bullshit about it's against it's the against law, the law and, you know, to serve two men, two men or two women in these booths. 
And that's when we explained to him that like, okay, we have been activists for a very long time. And that, that's bullshit. That if I can get a motel room with this woman, I know I can eat with her. Yeah. That's what we told him. We said, I don't know what, you know, you're in drugs? I mean, what mm -hmm. is the problem? And of course, at that point, it was, you know, everybody is looking at their little booths. And, you know, and, and we started, we asked for the, to see the manager. And we weren't going to move. Oh, and the manager came, or the, not. the guy that uh, turned out to be the real maitre d' and not the manager. We thought we were talking to the manager. Kept giving us the, you know, the back of the bus type of thing. You know, well, you can sit over there and you can sit over here and you'll have free drinks and the whole thing. But you will not, you cannot sit here. You will not be served here. And kept insisting that it was against the law. It was against the law. And we kept saying, you know, that's bullshit. And, you know, that, that really, oh, it makes me crazy thinking about it. You know, it made me... That made me more mad. You, you, so you got to remember, we were there about Martin Luther King's birthday, and then we were going to take it off the next day as this real show of solidarity and its importance in the whole bit. And if there's anything that King had taught us, it was that we could sit anywhere in the restaurant we wanted to sit. Yeah, and it was. And he kept saying it was time. for couples. Oh yeah, for couples only. Only. And we said a couple of what? We're a couple. Then he started copping on the owner. He said the owner was adamant. We took everything. That no saying. two men and no two women were going to be served there. So this has like gone on for about 15 minutes now. You know, we're not budging and we're screaming at each other. And I mean, he looked at us like, you know, you can rot and freeze your ass over in hell. You know, we will serve you someplace else but this section is for other kinds of people than you. Did he have any idea who he was talking about? No. No, I don't think so. No. <laughs> we left fuming and taking everybody's name, just fuming. You know, I think she was more angry than I, even as angry as I was. Fuming. I have, I have never, ever, ever been, been denied blatantly anything because of who I was, ever. You know, I, I knew about, you know, the discrimination that went on. My grandfather was, was discriminated in the same way that blacks were discriminated, where it was segregated. Segregated mean, meant white and others, you know. Um, so I had heard about the discrimination that my grandfather had, go, had, had to go through, and, but never did it happen. Never did it happen to me. And I had never been told that I couldn't do something or have something or be somewhere or because of who I was, or the color of my skin. And I, I, how dare you? How dare you? It you fucked know? with her day. To summarize it quickly, yeah, what happened? Okay, we go to court, the lower courts rule against us, the appellate court rules for us. So they have a right to petition the Supreme Court, which they did. When the Supreme Court said they weren't gonna hear it, then that meant that the Next lowest level, the appellate court's ruling was going to stand. There's a, like a four or five day window in between the appellate court finding out that the Supreme Court is not going to hear and them following through with what they started to do in the first place. In that window, they closed down and had all of these ads and had this public wake and everything else. So it's like rather than be... Rather than serve us and, and comply with the law, they just close the booth. They said, fuck you. 
you know, we're not going to do it at all. So they had a public wake, you know, the cameras, 11 o'clock news and the whole bit, free drinks, true romantic dining, died on this day, ads out. Yeah, it was terrible. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, and they, they closed were, it. They, they, from the very beginning, put the, put the boxing gloves on. I mean, their, their intent was, we're going to fight you, through, you know, to the very end, which is what we ended up doing. So that was the end of the booths? That was the, the end, end of the case? booths? That was the end of the well, booths? Well, yeah, basically, yeah, because we went back, and then they, you know, issued the injunction, and they issued, you know, the, the, the motion of summary judgment we won, and they paid the attorney's fees and gave us our fine. $250 a piece, which was the fine for the local the, audience, the, uh, ordinance. Uh, they had to pay the attorney's fees, which was... Almost 30000 Yeah. So. Yeah, almost $30,000. So they closed the booths. It's kind of like what they just did in Mississippi and Alabama, you know, instead of letting the black kids swim in the public they pools. The pool. They closed the pool. They wanted to pull the white kids out of the public school and start an academy. Yeah, that's what they did. They just closed it. Was it worth it? Oh, oh yeah. yeah. <laughs> oh, hell oh, yeah. yeah. Deborah Johnson and Zandra Rolon Amato never set out to test anti-discrimination laws, but they did and they won. And even though the owner of the Papa Shoe restaurant simply carted his romantic booths to the curb, Deborah and Zandra's case put teeth into the local gay rights ordinance. While their case didn't actually change California's civil rights bill to add sexual orientation, the appellate court interpreted the law to include sexual orientation. Also, their high-profile court challenge made national news and showed the impact of prejudice on ordinary citizens who were simply trying to live their lives. Deborah and Zandra separated in the mid-1990s. I called each of them just the other day to see how they were doing and to ask them about their moment in history. Dr. Zandra Rolon Amato is a chiropractor in private practice. She told me that the experience of the Papa Shoe case and the media attention that followed has allowed her to be fully engaged in her life as a lesbian and proud of it. The Reverend Deborah Johnson is the founder and spiritual director of Inner Light Ministries in Santa Cruz, California, a 2,500-member spiritual community. Deborah said that her favorite memory from that time was hearing their attorney, Gloria Allred, in an on-air radio debate with Papa Shoe's attorney. In his attempt to claim that what the restaurant did wasn't discrimination against gay people, he said the restaurant staff didn't know that Deborah and Zandra were lesbians because they were dressed so nicely. Yeah, right, and all gay men love Broadway show tunes. Well, anyway. Making Gay History is a team effort. Thank you to executive producer Sarah Burningham and audio engineer Ann Pope. We had assistance from Josh Gwynn. Our theme music was composed by Fritz Myers. Thank you also to social media strategist Will Coley, our webmaster Jonathan Dozer-Ezel, researchers Bronwyn Pardis and Zachary Seltzer, and thank you to our intrepid photo editor, Michael Green. A very special thank you to our guardian angel, Jenna Weiss-Berman. The Making Gay History podcast is a co-production of Pineapple Street Media with assistance from the New York Public Library's Manuscripts and Archives Division and One Archives at the USC Libraries. Season three of this podcast is made possible with funding from the Ford Foundation, which is on the front lines of social change worldwide. And if you like what you've heard, please subscribe to Making Gay History on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, NPR One, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also go to makinggayhistory.com 
That's where you'll find all our episodes, including photographs, notes, and links to additional information about all the people we feature in Making Gay History. So long, until next time.